Studies VPODs Intermediate Greek Program. This is lesson four. In this lesson, you will learn the ablative case and then look at 1 John 1, 6 through 10. The ablative is the case of separation or origin. It comes to the English from the Latin ablus, meaning carried off. This case has an interesting history associated with it. It involves the separation of the Eastern Church from the Western Church in the year 1045. The controversy is found in John 15:26. But when the Helper, that is the Holy Spirit, comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been from me from the beginning. The argument is... Where does the Holy Spirit proceed from? The Eastern Church said the Holy Spirit proceeded only from the Father, as it is, well, as you can see here in verse 26. The Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. Well, the Western Church believes that uh, the Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. Well, the great debate came to a head in the year 1045 when there was a mutual excommunication of the leaders. Well, there's a couple of things to point out about this story. One is, do not let one verse drive all your theology on a subject. That's principle number one. Don't let one verse rule all of your th theology. There are several verses to any particular doctrine. The second principle is do not deviate from the basic root meaning found in the grammar. Of course, in this argument, <clears throat> in verse 26, there's really no argument at all, is there? The spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. You know, the, the debate was really theological. It really concerned the origin of the Son and the Spirit. And it, it had its root and its origin a couple hundred years before the final split. And also, the final split in 1045 had to deal with icons as well. The Eastern Church uh, used icons in their worship heavily to the point of the Western Church saying that was idolatry. So that became a big problem. But the third big reason for the split was really political power. But back to the principles. The third principle is do not let reason replace revelation. In other words, reason is no substitute for revelation. The Trinity is a prime example of that. You can't reasonably explain the Trinity. But Revelation provides a clear description of a Trinity. So the first principle, do not let one verse drive all your theology. The second principle is do not deviate from the basic root found in the grammar and the third principle, do not let reason replace revelation. That's an important part as you go through your translation work. Now, when speaking of the ablative, it may be static or progressive. In the static sense, it means, in essence, a state of being, as separated, where the emphasis may be either on the resulting state, you know, your resulting state of being as separated, for example, uh, unsaved people are uh, in a state, uh, they're dead, in a state of separation from God. So either as a resulting state or separate, separation as the cause 
or the source or the origin. The other way the ablative, ablative is to be understood is in a progressive sense, in moving away from something. That's just the basic sense. So here's the uses for the ablative. There is the ablative of separation. This is the basic sense. And in this sense, it is oftentimes used or accompanied with the preposition apo or ak. It, and it means separation, maybe either physical or metaphorical. For example, in Ephesians 2.12, here's an example of, of having been alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. That's a separation. Then there's the ablative of source. The ablative of source says something about the source or the origin of the subject, of the head noun. Now let's take a look at 1 John. I hope you got your detailed analysis from the website, and uh, we'll dig into this. 1 John 1, 6, the first phrase, Ain apomen hote kainomenon exomen met atu. If we say that we continue to have fellowship with him, and then the next phrase, kai in to skota peripletomen pseudometha, and we walk in darkness, we lie. Very strong. Notice we're going to start this section in verse 6, and then verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, and verse 10. All start with a conditional particle, if. And then John is going to go back and forth between a false walk and a true walk. So in verse 6, he starts with this conditional particle, if, and then the verb is a, is a, is a second aorist active subjunctive, first plural, uh, to say or to speak. If we say, John includes himself in this statement, if we say, and it's a subjunctive, that means there's possibility there. So when we say that this conditional particle ain with an aorist subjunctive makes this a third-class conditional phrase, which is a, a condition of probability. If we might say we continue, to, we continue in fellowship and we continue to walk, that's a deliberative, uh, it, it's extending that question, if we walk in darkness, then we lie. The deliberative subjunctive poses a hypothetical case. This is a supposition, not an actual fact. John, John includes himself in this supposition as if to say, it is possible that believers, yes, even apostles, can be self-deceived, and we can. There are some sins we can give up, but then there are others we refuse to give up. God has to work on us, to try us, to test us, to put the heat on us, in order to force us to address the sin issue that we refuse to give up. So if we continue to have fellowship, at present tense, we continue to uh, have, relates the idea of possessing a continuous walk in fellowship with God the Father. But our walk tells a different story. Darkness, that skotas, is placed before the present active subjunctive, perepleto the present active subjunctive first-person plural, to walk. That's that compound of peri, around, or uh, about, and uh, pieto, to tread, from an unused root, uh, meaning a path, so that we might walk or walk about. And it speaks the possibility of walking in darkness, that we, believers, even John the Apostle, 
might walk in darkness. It's possible. The middle voice of pseudomai, it's a present middle passive indicative, to lie, to speak deliberate falsehoods, to deceive by a lie, it might better be translated, we ourselves lie or are lying. This may also be thought of as a passive, in which case it might better be translated, we continue to be liars. The thing that makes us liars is the fact that we claim allegiance to God, who is light, and there's no darkness in him at all, but our actions, our daily walk, is inconsistent with God and his light. Our walk is in darkness. We hold on to our sin, and that's what is in view here. That next phrase, we continue not doing the truth. Notice that the walk is in darkness. The preposition denoting position in time, place, or a state of being. The reality of our fellowship with him, that is Christ, then cannot be mixed with a walk inconsistent with his character. Or, not only is it called a lie, but we continue, notice that, we continue, the present tense, not doing the truth. Truth is associated with light. Darkness with a lie. Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life. Truth, light, and life are all tightly related. One cannot expect to hold on to one's sin and not be held accountable. God will hold you accountable. He will chastise those he loves. Now we move on to verse 7. The first phrase in verse 7, this is the true walk. Again, it starts with a conditional particle. But if we continue to walk in the light as he is in the light, we continue to have fellowship with one another. It's a contra contrastive conjunction day that introduces what happens when one walks in the light. And placed with this conditional particle, places this again as a third-class conditional phrase. If, we, if in the light we might continue to walk, then we will continue to have fellowship with one another. The possibility is there for real fellowship. The idea is one of sanctification. That's our walk, not our position. Our position in, is in Christ, but our daily walk is in the light, or rather should be in the light. Our position is secure without further condition, because he died on the cross, but our walk is conditional, based on walking in the light. John likes to use the, the phrase, abide in me. Abide in me means uh, to walk in his word, to stay with him. Our walk is associated with his light by use of the word hos. It's a, it's, hos is a simile. It's as or like. And a simile relates one object as being like another. It resembles something else. They're not equal, but they're similar. Christ is light or truth, so we should walk about doing as he would have us do. This walk in the light is directly related to our fellowship with fellow believers. Notice that. The world does not accept the light and will not tolerate the light when we present it to the world. They think it is foolishness. This verse does not speak of our relationship with the world nor our desire to evangelize the world, but narrowly focuses upon fellow believers. Our fellowship is identified first with the Father and the Son. Notice that. That is verse 3. 
We have to be reconciled. We have to be saved first. And then this common bond of fellowship first starts with salvation in his reconciling us to him and then moves to our daily walk, linking our right relationship with him and that fellowship with one another as a continuous bond. There is a fundamental rule that comes out of this, namely, that if we are continuously in fellowship, we are abiding in him, we will continuously be in fellowship with others in him. This does not mean that we will not have problems with others. This is, after all, a fallen world with spiritual battle always in play. But if we are sinners, if we are sincere in our walk, walking in his word, being sensitive to his spirit, we will be in right relationship, not only with him, but one to another. The walk, peripeto, this is a present active subjunctive first person plural, again as to walk, and uh, the present subjunctive with the conditional makes this the third class condition, meaning the outcome will come true. Walking towards the light of God, or towards the truth of God, produces a right relationship and fellowship. The next phrase, Kaito hama esu christu tu we atu katharadzai hemas ato pases hamatas. And the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of Him, cleanses us from all sin. And the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood there is the nominative, the subject, with a definite article. That's the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, and then notice, remember, you go find the nominative case, and then you go find your verb. In this case, the verb is kathrodzo, to cleanse. It's a present active indicative, third person singular. To make clean, to pronounce clean in a Levitical sense. That blood cleanses. Our fellowship implies a process of growth where our sin is exposed to the light through his word. And that convicting uh, work of the Spirit produces a repentance on our part. This calls it like it is. That's what confession is. Confessing our sins and turning away from that sin results in reconciliation between parties. Making our walk a walk that is correct or at least a move in the right direction. It's a profound statement. And the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of Him, cleanses us from all sin. It gives us a positive aspect of the application of our daily walk. That is, that blood that has already been shed by Jesus on the cross, which made atonement once for all, has a secondary application and that it has continuous, it serves to continuous, that present tense, continuous cleansing or purifying effect on sin, our sin. The word blood, hema, is the subject of the phrase. The blood cleanses us from all sin. The verb cleanses comes from katharozo and is a present active indicative, and it finds its theological root in the sacrificial system that began even before the law as the Lord himself closed Adam and Eve with an animal skin in their newfound nakedness of Genesis 3. This newfound nakedness required a covering, a kafir, in the form of clothing which covered their nakedness. 
though the formal declaration of atonement and a covering of sin does not become formalized until the Exodus account, the root idea is found back there in the garden. In the Old Testament, God did not take away sin. He covered them until Christ came and removed them. Life is found in the blood, as Leviticus 17.11 proclaims. But this life is physical life. Death is linked to the fall of mankind. That is, through the disobedience of one man, both a spiritual and physical death is understood as the result. This pronouncement of death because of disobedience resulted in the slaying of the first animal as a covering for mankind. The concept of a covering for sin moved from the pre-Mosaic law days to the time of the Mosaic law system. As sin multiplied, so the slaughtering increased. Each day required the slaying of an animal, covering sin upon sin, sacrifice upon sacrifice. Each day was a bloody purifying event. Just as disobedience to the word of God moved mankind to a physical sacrifice, in like manner the physical moves to the spiritual through obedience to the word of God. All the purification rites of the Old Testament, the days of separation because of impurity, the water cleansing, and the blood cleansing, all are complete in the shed blood of Christ on the cross. He alone is the only one who can say, it is finished. The sin issue has been resolved. But now, how does blood come into the picture to begin with? Modern science affirms that blood really is the source of life. It delivers the necessary substances to the body's cells. These cells need oxygen. They need the nutrients. And it serves as a transport mechanism for transporting waste products away from the cells. Next, blood, with all of its Old Testament regulation, was not to be consumed or even handled. The reality that blood equals physical life is plainly revealed in the Old Testament, but it also places a spiritual aspect to blood as ritual cleaning, cleansing by means of a blood substitute. Blood was for atonement, not nourishment. Its representation as life implies a respect for life. So, the Mosaic's instruction for careful handling of it and the concept of one's life as a substitute for another. The blood of the slain animal was sprinkled on that Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, seven times by the high priest on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the Day of Covering, thus signifying a propitiation a satisfaction of the holy demands of a righteous God. The shed blood symbolized forgiveness. The shed blood of Christ holds a significant legal and reconciliatory aspect taught throughout the Bible, covering various theological subjects. Here is a summary of what the shed blood of Christ accomplishes for us. It accomplishes our forgiveness. Our forgiveness. Ephesians 1 7. Our redemption, Acts 20 28. Our propitiation, Romans 3 25. Our justification, Romans 5 9. Our reconciliation, Ephesians 2 13 through 16. Our cleansing, 
Hebrews 9 and 14. And finally, our holiness. Hebrews 13 and 12. Listen, the good news is that Christ's blood covered once for all the sins of the world. The believer no longer has to bring a blood sacrifice before the Lord. The one who believes that the blood of Christ covers his or her sin now accepts that free will offering that Christ himself has already provided on the cross. That's a profound statement. That was the positive walk. Now John moves back to a false walk in verse 8. Ein ipomen hote hamartrian uk akomen. If we might say that we have no sin, <laughs> the next phrase is catchy, we are deceiving ourselves. But the first phrase, let's dig into that. Again, it starts with a conditional. A conditional, again, if we say, <clears throat> with that subjunctive, speaking that third-class condition, the possibility, uh, this is the protasis, the subordinate clause to the third-class condition. And it relays the idea of reality, or rather the certainty of the outcome. In other words, it might be said, if we say we have no sin but we do, then we deceive ourselves. The Apostle John includes himself in this argument as he uses that second aorist active subjunctive first person plural, if we say. The next phrase, this is the apodosis, the main clause of the third class conditional condition relaying the result. The result of our declaration that we are without sin is that we have wandered from the truth as the root meaning of the Greek word pleno means to wander or to mislead. And again, that's a present active indicative. We continue to cause to stray. We continue to lead astray or deceive. Well, you know, we are deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Just flat, simple statement there. It doesn't get any prettier than that statement. The nominative, the subject case there, aletheia, truth, with a definite article, that truth and, and is not negative particle with the me, uh, the present active indicative, third person singular, is not in the preposition and in the personal pronoun, first person plural, us. And further, the truth is not in us. The subject of this sentence is truth. Truth is a big subject for God, and the Apostle John makes truth a dominant theme within all of his writings. John uses the word truth 37 times. And it's from the compound of the negative particle A, or not, and lantheon, to be hidden. Truth is something that can be hidden, but God is the light, the one exposing that which is hidden for what it really is. The idea here when used with a definite article, seems to indicate the truth relates to, in a definite way, to our sin. And the truth is that God is light and has already exposed the truth concerning his death and cleansing blood as a substitute for sin. Therefore, to say we have no sin makes his death and work in his first coming of no effect. Truth is one of the most important subjects of the Bible and is demanded by God. God's word is truth. 
So we are to measure both our word and deeds according to his word. Truth is defined objectively, signifying the reality of what is seen and heard, and subjectively, truthfulness, or sincerity and integrity of character. The objective truth is that Christ died for our sin, for the sins of the world. The subjective truth is that once saved, we are set apart from the rest of the world, in fellowship, in union with that which is holy, and our fellowship has its reference and testimony in how God saved a sinner like me. That's our testimony. And in verse 9, we move to the true walk, back to the true walk. Again, it starts with a conditional, uh, conditional particle. Ain. If we confess our sins, the apostle provides a remedy for our lying and sin. Confession. That's the remedy. This again is another third class condition, meaning if we confess our sins, then God will forgive our sins. The ain in the protasis with the subjunctive and any mood or tense in the apodasis forms that third class condition. It's the class of real probability. So anyone can trust that any sin confessed will result in true forgiveness. The Greek word homolego is a present active subjunctive first person plural, meaning to say the same thing as another to agree, to concede, or profess. And it comes from the compound hamu, together, and lagas, the same. Hence, to call it like God calls it, to call it like it is. That is real confession. The next phrase, pisto estin kai diakas hena afe hemen tas hamatas. He is faithful and righteous in order that he might forgive our sins. It is because he both pistos, that's an adjective. Faithfulness is an adjective. It's also the, sub, the subject um, that's the nominative case. He is trusty. He is faithful. And he's also the other part, the other adjective, didakos. Righteous, just, observing divine laws. He forgives sin. He is faithful and just in forgiving us and forgiving sins. The adjectives might better be translated, he is the faithful one and the righteous one. The two characteristics, he is faithful and he is righteous, make it possible for him to forgive us our sins. There are two theological characteristics of God. Only God is faithful. He alone can and will do what he says. This basic characteristic is rooted in everything he does and says. He will do what he promises. That is the basis of the term faith. The substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1 1. Likewise, only one is righteous, showing no partiality, having no prejudices or influence in judgment. His faithfulness and righteousness are given as having the purpose, the Hena clause there, for forgiving sins and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. The word for forgiveness, afimi, is an aorist active subjunctive, and it means to send away or let go. The idea goes back to the Old Testament concept of the goat of Jehovah and the goat of Azrael, the scapegoat. 
And on the Day of Atonement, these two goats were used. And it has that idea of a substitute. One goat is let go. One goat is slaughtered. Christ is our substitute. He took our place and bore our sins on the cross. That next phrase, And he might cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First he cleanses us from our sin. Then he cleanses us from our unrighteousness. Those two concepts are linked. Sin and unrighteousness. There are two parts to the conditional then statement. If we confess, then he will forgive us and cleanse us. The cleansing in Kadrozo, that aorist active subjunctive, means what is cleansed or made pure is the confessor's unrighteousness. In verse 7, it was the application of blood that cleanses us, and it was in the present tense, continues to clean us. Here we find the heiress, which is timeless, but it indicates the action will take place, or the action has taken place. The heiress third class conditional presents reality that will be fulfilled. We move on to verse 10, the false walk. If we might say that we have not sinned, we are making a liar of him. Boy, that is a strong, strong statement. This is, again, that third-class conditional sentence. And it starts with a, with a conditional particle. The third one stated so far. John's suppositions are meant to inspire self-reflection, to question ourselves. His progression is as follows. If we have fellowship with him, the implication to ask is, are we saved? Then the next question. If we have no sin that is meant for us to ask, are we glorified yet? And if we have never sinned, and it comes to the height, what, are we God? The language is that of an unsaved person, one that does not accept the things of God. But John includes himself in a kind of check-yourself kind of way of speaking. Can a saved person get into this situation where sin grabs hold and confusion reigns? In fact, what is the language of sin? To be an heir, to miss the mark, a characteristic of all human beings, as all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Notice what the language used by John is strong. We made God a liar. If God has said that all have sinned, but one says, I have not sinned, then that one has called God a liar. The doctrine of sin is clear in both the Old and the New Testaments, and it covers the extent of the problem of sin. All have sinned because all are born in sin. Or to say it more exactly, Adam's sin has been passed down to all humans. Uh, theologically, it's imputation of sin. We have imputation of sin from Adam to all mankind, and imputation of righteousness, Christ's righteousness, upon mankind. Wonderful, wonderful theological concept. The next phrase, And the word of him is not in us. The blunt fact of the argument is his word is not in us. Halagos, the word, is synonymous with the Bible. Having the word of God in us is synonymous 
with abiding in Christ. And having the indwelling presence of God within us provides that ability to listen to Him, to be sensitive to His Word. Are we sensitive to the indwelling Spirit? Being saved means we are a new creation in Christ, meaning we have a new nature, a spirit that is sensitive to the things of God. Understanding that we are a sinner is foundational to being a Christian. One cannot profess Christ as Savior without understanding what that means. Acknowledging one's sin and accepting Jesus' death as an acceptable payment for sins for the sins of the world, is the foundation of the message. Can a Christian deny his or her sin nature? John says, this one is a liar, and God's word is not in him. John says a Christian can do that. It is not that this person is not saved. John says this person has a problem of holding near the truths of the message. This person speaks as one who is self-righteous, and has no need of a Savior. Can you imagine anyone who would go before a righteous God and say, You're a liar. I've never sinned. That is what John says we do when we don't call our sin for what it really is. Let me summarize this. John's argument says this. He seems to be saying, when a Christian has a conflict between God's word and personal sin, one should admit our sin truthfully rather than denying it. We can justify our sin. Those sins we own when we are two years old are quite different from the sins we have as a teenager. We do not have a problem admitting two-year-old sins when we're a teenager. Likewise, those sins we possess in our 20s are very different from those sins we possess in our 60s and 70s. At each stage of life, we can justify our sins, and sometimes we can refuse to give them up, even denying they are sin. John's little letter is one of personal application here. He will now address our gracious position in Christ. Join us next time as we look at chapter 2. 